All right. <clears throat> Back to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 8. All right, a little bit of review trivia. How many deportations of the southern tribes? Who are the southern tribes, by the way, in Israel? There's two of them. Who are the southern tribes? Who is the main one? Judah is the main one. And who tagged along with Judah? He was one of the little brothers, Joseph, or Benjamin. By the way, interesting side note, I don't know how much it had to do with it, but you remember the story of Joseph's life? Uh, Judah, Judah was one of the ones that was originally in favor of selling Joseph, you remember? And it was Reuben that was trying to get him to stop. Well, fast forward 20-some years, and uh, remember here, Joseph's prime minister of Egypt, and they go back and get food, you know the story, and, and Joseph says, we've got to send your little brother, and they bring Benjamin, and you remember he's going to lock up Benjamin and keep him as a slave, you remember that? And it was Judah that stood up and made this, one of the best, I don't know, speeches, if you want to call it that, it really an incredible uh, appeal for him to be taken instead of his brother. And from that time forward, you see Judah and Benjamin, even all the way down to the Civil War, Judah and Benjamin. In fact, when you see it, when you see Judah referred to, it almost always in the Old Testament carries Benjamin with it, almost like a, a silent partner. You know, when it refers to Judah was the dominant huge tribe and the one the Messiah came out of. But okay, so the, the northern tribes went to where? Where'd they go? Where'd they get carried to captive? The northern tribes, over 100 years before the south. Where'd they go? Who is the world empire? Capitals Nineveh? Assyria? Assyria? Okay, then 100 years later, where'd the southern tribes get carried to? Starts with the B. Come on. Babylon. How many deportations were there? How many waves did they get carried off in? Three. Three different groups. And then when they came back, it was also three different waves. Remember our acronym Z-E-N, Zen, hate the word, but Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, spaced out. And they were spaced out quite a ways. Uh, between Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra, or 80 years roughly go by. So there's quite a spacing in this. All right, think about what is it when we call a place home? What is it that makes it home? That's a, I know that could be a whole hour-long discussion, but what are some elements? Family? What else? Well, how about familiarity? Sights, sounds, smells. Um, how many of you know what Fred Meyer's stores are? You know what they are? The actual grocery store? Are there any of those in Montana? I didn't think so. Yeah, when we moved here, that was one of the things my wife missed the most, practically, was Fred Meyers. They had a great health section. They were close by, and she, she missed going shopping at Fred Meyer. Uh, I'll tell you, when Winco came to town, it was clear the living room and do cartwheels. She was, she was stoked about that. So familiarity, um, knowing my way around, getting to see familiar places. I personally think, I love how Helena, I know some people gripe about there's not enough shopping here. You ever hear that? Maybe if you're a shopaholic, that, but, but it has almost everything. Plus, if I have to drive to Bozeman, or, eh, big deal. It's kind of fun. 
Besides that, you can probably buy it on Amazon, right? Whatever. It is. <laughs> Did I just say that? <laughs> well, but I like the I like going to buy lumber, and there's Brian working there. It's just cool. You get to know people. What else? What other things about home? Memories, that's a big one. All right, now think of your descent for a minute. I know we're, we're all Caucasian folk, but what's your, what's your ancestry? You found out you're Jewish. What else? Who else? I'm Italian and French. Who else? What are you? Do you know? 0.02% South African. No joke. This isn't like the Elizabeth Warren thing, is it? No. I don't want to talk about politics. Okay, so what else? What else? Anybody else know their Heinz 57 background? Norwegian. Norwegian. All right, let's say someone came to you and said, hey, I got great news. I want you to go back to Norway and help build a national monument. And you would say, huh? You'd say, well, yeah, that's my descent, but I've never been there. Oh, by the way, you can look up, this is, I think this is kind of amusing, and I don't know that I'd ever go, but there's a place in Germany called Croft Castle. You can look it up online, Croft Castle. Uh, the family actually lives in like an apartment in there now, because they can't afford to keep the whole grounds. But it's a historic castle going back ever how many generations. But that's my wife's relatives. And apparently, I'm told they have a, a family tree on the wall, and some of our relatives went and visited there, and they knew who they were. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right here on, I guess they're big in a genealogy. So we've been told, if you're ever in Germany, go knock on the door, tell them who you're related to, and they'll probably know who you are. I don't know if that's true, and I don't know if I'd ever do it, but that's our ancestry. But if someone came to me and said, hey, I want you to go, you need to leave America, go to Croft Castle, and build the walls. It might sound cool for a trip, but a relocation? I, I, that was what these Jews were facing. We're going to talk when Ezra comes to them and, and, and basically starts asking them, hey, you want to go back with me? The majority, in fact, I'd say in his group, all of them had been born and raised in Babylon. That's what they knew. That was the language they knew, the cultural idioms they knew, that was the commerce they knew. They had homes, gardens, businesses. Here comes this guy saying, hey, you need to go back to the land of your ancestry. What's it like? Oh, it's a pile of rubble. Are you in? Oh, and it's surrounded by enemies. <laughs> but, of course, God was preparing their heart. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm glad I'm not called to go back to Europe somewhere. But of course, uh, the Jews had a special relationship with that land as God's promised land. I need to turn to Ezra 8. I had everybody else turn there. I did not. Did I say Ezra 8? Join me in Ezra 8. <clears throat> so Ezra wants to go back.
and restore the city and beautify the temple. So he's asking for volunteers. Exchange your Babylonian homes, comfortable surroundings for hardship and an uncertain future. And of course, those who went had a dependence upon the Lord. Now we were in Ezra 7. What Ezra 7 does is summarize his return to Jerusalem. And then chapter 8 sort of flashes back and gives uh, more interesting, fascinating details. And they show us more about Ezra's character, what type of man he was, as well as some uh, very important basic principles of depending on the Lord in times of uncertainty. So, all right, personnel for the journey. You see this list beginning of the chapter. I clear up through really verse 20, but there's a list of names up through verse 14. So Ezra calls for volunteers to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And picking up in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Now these are the chief of their fathers, and this is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. And then he lists uh, several family names, which we'll get to in a minute. So it wasn't a compulsion. The king didn't open the door and say, get out. But he said, you want to go back? Have at it. Go ahead. I imagine some of them, it was like a dream, a shocking thing, really. Did he really just say that? Imagine family sitting, here's husband and wife at the dinner table. Little children listening, discussing the pros and cons, leaving Babylon. I don't know, we were established here, but it is God's promised land. Yeah, but the danger and... Are we commanded to go back? I mean, shouldn't it be somebody else? We're not, we're just regular. What, what can we do? We're just, I just, I'm a bricklayer or something. I don't, you know, real discussions, kind of like we have making decisions. So Ezra opens the doorway for volunteers, and uh, it's safe to say he was not overwhelmed with applicants. It wasn't like there was a barnstorm of tens of thousands of people running him over and begging to go. In fact, it was a small number of Jews that actually signed up for the journey. Uh, Probably many Jews in Babylon, again, I'd say all of them that he took, had grown accustomed to life there. They built houses, planted gardens, and were earning a living. Again, it's not just the practical side of a business and a house, it's the memories. Our kids have grown up here. I grew up here, that's all I know. I planted that tree and built that swing. I'm familiar with the street. We're just getting to know our neighbors. Uh, They had been born in captivity and had no personal experience with living in the promised land. They didn't even know what it looked like. It's not like you could go on Google Earth and say, yeah, why, here it is right here. Do you ever do that, by the way, in your Bible reading? Go to Google Earth. Uh, Remember the passage... Uh, I'll just side note this. I I may have mentioned this before. I can't remember. But I found it interesting. You, you, You remember the story about... The maniac of Gadara, and the Lord casts the, 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 the demons out, and they go into the pigs, and they run down a violent place, a steep place violently into the sea. Remember that? You can actually look on Google Earth, and I think it's that northeast corner. You can see those cliffs. Now, the water's back from it. The sea, of, uh, uh, the, the sea has dropped in depth because of pulling water out of it, so it's farther from the shore. But you can tell back then, I was actually reading data on water in there and how high it used to be. But you can see where the water went up into these kind of things, almost like the Missouri breaks kind of, and just cliffs. And you can see, well, that's where it happened. And they were farming evidently right up on top of it. But 
These people couldn't go on Google Earth. They couldn't go on Wikipedia or Wrongopedia with its half-wrong information. Don't believe everything Wikipedia says, by the way. Can you think of some... There's, don't get me wrong, I do read on there. But an encyclopedia where anybody can contribute? Does anybody with a view of human depravity think that that's going to go well long-term? Uh, yeah, especially if you're looking up any kind of Christian topics, double-check it, because it's wrong a lot, a whole lot. But they couldn't do any of that. They didn't know what it looked like. They didn't have photographs. Nothing. In fact, most of the people they knew had never been there. It's desert. It's uh, 900 miles away. Why in the world would they exchange familiar surroundings and a comfortable life for an uncertain future? And by the way, why, why would they? What, what would make them do that? It wasn't just sheer love of adventure. It really, it really had to be, for the genuine ones, one thing. This is where God's blessing lies. And they couldn't have seen how with, with physical eyes. They, they, had to, they had to read and believe the Scriptures. That's it. That, that, that would have to be their reasoning. So the list of attorneys in Ezra 8, and it's interesting, it begins with the members of the priestly and Davidic lineage. If you compare the list of families that returned to Jerusalem under Ezra and the list who returned under Zerubbabel, remember we're 80-ish years apart, you see the same major family names with the exception of Joab's family. So the families in Ezra's group of returnees uh, is actually related to the families who returned from Babylon about 80 years earlier. Same families. Obviously, they've grown a little distant over 80 years. But apparently, there were some family ties at least. Or maybe it was in those lineages that, that they were the most spiritually astute. They, they had the people that were still carrying the Scriptures around and believed it. I don't know. But it's an interesting side note. Uh, so God keeps track of His people and their activities. And you read that. Again, I know we don't like genealogies typically, and we don't like lists of names. I mean, your, your eyes just sort of scan. But think for a minute what that's telling us. Every one of those names is a record of somebody who was pretty much unknown, believed God, and God recorded their name to show He doesn't forget. He does not forget. One of the, one of the, one of the wonderful things about those little details, it shows God is sovereign and remembers even the seemingly insignificant. I don't think any of these people thought they were heroes. I don't think any of the Hebrews 11, we call them heroes of the faith, so-called. I don't think any of them, if you would have interviewed them, would have said, yes, I, I'm sure I'll go down in history. When Moses' parents hid their baby from Pharaoh's command, they saw he was a goodly child or proper child. They're, it didn't mean he was just cute. Every mother thinks her baby's cute. But, but she, she, some, she knew something, something. Somehow it was communicated to her, as I understand it, that 
This was the deliverer. And so by the seemingly simple act of hiding a child, was that heroic? Look what God says about it. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, Hebrews 11, I, one of the things I love about the chapter is it runs the gamut of things that we would say heroic deeds and just mundane things. I mean, taking 100 years to build an ark. An old man leaving his native country to go where he doesn't know where he's going. Just read the list, and a lot of them aren't named, but the Lord knows them. I mean, think of the application to us. You, do you know there's not one thing you do for God? It's actually for Him. Let me just say as a side note, is motive important? Motive is very important. But I think we need to have a balanced perspective, and I want to be careful saying this, but I think you'll understand what I mean. Is our motive ever 100% perfect? I wonder if it is. It's tainted by flesh. Worry about motive. Search it before God. Confess sin, but don't let fears of irrational fears of maybe, maybe, maybe there's some inkling of doing this for the wrong reason, so I'm not going to do anything for God. Don't let that stop you. Because when you do good, evil's present with you. That, that insidious voice is going to show up. It's going to show up. So I'm not saying motive's not important, but I'm saying there is such a thing as going forward in spite of the struggle. Remember, drawing near to God always cleanses evil. <laughs> and the devil would have you say, well, I'm going I'm to distance myself from his will while I fix myself. That, that does not work. You distance from God never fixes our problems, ever. But take passages like we won't turn there. 1 Corinthians 3.14 It's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And anything we build on, if it abides, you receive a reward. And it's not just big public stuff. Remember the Lord said, talked about a, a glass of cold water. And the, the, the specific time application of that's another story. But, but my point in that is, even something like that, he sees. Uh, I love Hebrews 6.10. It says, God is not unrighteous. He uses the word unrighteous. He's not unrighteous that he should forget your labor of love. So in other words, God is saying, if he forgot the least thing you did for his name, he, that would be unrighteous. It would be wrong of him to do that, and he will not do that. <laughs> so, uh, not everything we do is seen. A lot of what we do is not. Uh, not everything th these people did was recorded in the Scriptures, but it's a reminder that the least things we do among God's people, building each other up, being a listening ear, being a prayer warrior, being an encouragement, being a blessing, those things, the Lord has them written down. Not that He needs a list, but the idea is that He, re he remembers. All right, so, uh, verse 15. And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. Ahava seems to be a canal that flowed through the Ahava district into the Euphrates River near Babylon. We're not positive what it is, but some kind of body of water in that district. I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. There abode we in tents three days, and I viewed the people and the priests and found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, in Ezra's shoes... What was significant about that? 
What was, why did that matter? What were the Levites? The priests, the, the spiritual leadership. So Ezra's wanting to take a group back to facilitate God's work in the new land. And he walks through the little crowd he has and realizes there are zero people that are supposed to be the spiritual leaders who have signed up to come. Uh, well, that's kind of a problem since his plan to teach the law in Judah required the assistance of Levites. He needed their help. Now, think, what are some of the ways Ezra could have reacted to that? I mean, we know ourselves. Let's say you're, let's say you're Ezra. What are, what are some possible reactions to that? How about getting mad at the Levites? Stinking, pathetic, carnal, world-minded, Babylonian, ungrateful. I mean, that's one reaction. And by the way, it's not always bad. There, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, but it's, it's a rare thing. When Moses broke the tables at the foot of the mount, he should have. We should hate fake religion, by the way. Hate fake religion. Uh, so he could have gotten mad. What else? What else could he have done? Gone without him? There's, there's a definite option. Fine. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to come? All right. Yeah, let's see how this goes for you. What else? How about discouragement? And why bother? That's a dumb idea anyways. I don't know why. It's obvious that I missed something, you know. Well, what, what does he do? Then I sent for Eliezer, for Ariel, for Shemaiah, and for Elnathan, and for Jerob, and for Elnathan, that's a different one, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshulam, chief men. Also for Joyarib, and for Elnathan, men of understanding. And I sent them with commandment unto Iddo, the chief at the place of Casiphia, and I told them, what they should say unto Ido and to his brethren the Nethanims at the place Casiphia, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. Remember, the Nethanims were servants to the Levites, probably the descendants of the Gibeonites. But so he sends he sends men back. He dispatches nine leaders and two learned men, two scholars, to Casiphia, which was a community where the Levites had settled in Babylon. That was the Levitical neighborhood. You heard of Chinatown? Well, here's Levite town. <clears throat> At Casiphia, the eleven emissaries are supposed to speak to Ido, the Levite's leader, and enlist his help in persuading Levites to join Ezra's expedition. So he sends eleven men. Hey, go find their leadership and have a little heart-to-heart with them. I mean, we're, we're, we're really not told what Ezra told his recruiters to tell the Levites. <laughs> I, who knows? What, what did they use to persuade him? It would have been carnal methods. But maybe they told, taught him about the greatness of God. I mean, they, maybe they reminded them of God's promises, books like Deuteronomy. Uh, maybe they 
reminded them of the seriousness of their charge as Levites. I mean, some of them, if he came to them and said, look, you know where the promised land is. You know why we're in captivity, don't you? You know that we've reached the time where the captivity's ended. You know that God said he'd regather us. You know the, the Lord moved the heart of the king to let us go. In fact, some have been there now for 80 years. And uh, you do know that you're a Levite, right? And what that means, that you're supposed to be in some kind of a leadership uh, example role. So I'm just wondering, what's your reasoning for staying? Uh, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's how it went. But whatever they said was effective. What a delicate assignment, though. So from their mind, the best Levitical positions back in the Promised Land would have already been taken. So they're going to go clean up whatever roles are left. What could possibly motivate them to leave the comfort, routine, and familiar surroundings of Casiphia for the rigors of a 900-mile journey to Jerusalem in an unclear future? Well, of course, it would take an intervention of God. So God gave them a successful mission, and uh, they come back towing 38 Levites and 220 Nethanims. So 38 priests and 220 temple servants to help out. And they leave their hometown and enlist in Ezra's little army of exiles. You see that in verse 18. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren, 18. Hashabiah and with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, his brethren and their sons, 20. Also of the Nethanims, whom David and the princess had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanims. All of them were expressed by name. Again, God kept a record of that and knew who these men were. And again, you see the, the blending there. It's a common theme throughout Scripture. I think it's insinuated, obviously, that Ezra would have brought this before the Lord in prayer. He gives the credit to God, the good hand of our God upon us. So Ezra's begging God to move the hearts of these men to get off their spiritual duffs and do the will of God. But then he sends men to him to plead personally. And of course, those two things work together to to bring them to Jerusalem. All right, verse 21. Now that the Levites and Nethanim had joined the other exiles at Ahava, Ezra was almost ready to lead the expedition to Jerusalem. First, though, he prepared the people spiritually for their mission. Look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. So Ezra cares about this flock that God had assembled, and he proclaims a fast at Ahava Canal and encourages the people to humble themselves before God and ask Him to keep them, their children, and their possessions safe as they traveled. By the way, let me, let me throw this question out. <clears throat> what, what do you think is included in humbling themselves before God? 
What, what do you think that means? I mean, when we say we were humbled by something, a friend of mine sang an Easter special on Easter Sunday, and then he fell down the stairs afterwards. You might say that humbled him. <laughs> he would say that. Is that what this means? Uh, does it mean they sat in a circle and said, hey, I'm going to tell you how stupid and lame I am, and then you tell me how pathetic and worthless you are, and we'll just humble ourselves. You think that's what they did? <laughs> no. But a big part of that, taking time to meditate on God's power versus their weakness. I mean, I think absolutely included in that is searching of personal sin. Remember, we have the example of David asking God, search me and try me. And uh, by the way, I, I think there's good case that that's not, oh, Lord, search me. Okay, well, now what I was saying, but, but there's actually time involved. Let's say I come up against a brick wall somewhere in my life. Sometimes what's needed is to take some time, maybe days, maybe, some, maybe a couple days, to ask the Lord what hindrance there might be and actually be ready to listen and do something about it. And the Spirit will lead us individually in this. I'm not trying to make a hard, fast rule. But I think included in this humbling was make sure you're genuine. The last thing they needed on a 900-mile trek back to the Promised Land was an Achan in the camp. It was the last thing they needed. So, Ezra's, hey, let's, let's make sure we're clean before God and let's ask His help. I mean, you think about it, you're one of Ezra's advisors. You're about to leave in the morning on a 900-mile journey. Would you recommend not eating for a day prior? Probably not. You might say, hey, stock up on the jerky, right? Um, well, they did it. They placed themselves, their children, their goods in God's hands. By fasting, they're telling God they were serious about wanting His help. By the way, side note, this has to be maintained. Two things. Number one, Fasting in the Bible is never commanded, it's commended. Not commanded. It's not a thou shalt fast on these days every Friday or what. Now, a church can do that. Uh, men may band together and do that, but there's no biblical rule saying you have to fast this much or that you ever have to for that matter. Secondly, it's got to be maintained. Fasting is not meritorious. Fasting is not... I'm going to starve myself, and through those hunger pains, I'm going to make God listen to me because He's going to see how bad my stomach hurts. No, 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 no. <clears throat> what it's doing is uh, sort of clearing the clutter, setting aside something that is a liberty of mine, to devote more time to seeking the face of God. It's not meritorious, but there is a sense in which it shows our seriousness. Um, 
That doesn't make God hear us. If we fast and pray, that doesn't mean God just has to answer. It doesn't mean that at all. Okay, the heart behind it is very important. But anyway, God hears them. They're carrying tons. I mean, think, they're carrying tons of silver and gold and other goods and supplies. You've got this mostly untrained people going 900 miles through rugged wilderness carrying cartloads of gold and silver. It's like, hi, rob me, please. Big target. A band of thieves could easily take their lives and steal their lightly guarded goods. The returnees laid aside their fear and pride and humbly acknowledged God to lead them if their journey was going to be a success. So they would face threats of ambush, open attacks, thieves, robbers, etc. But look at verse 22. I was ashamed, Ezra says, to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So, let me pose an interesting question. Nehemiah later on, I'm getting to a question. I know this isn't starting as a question. Nehemiah, when he takes his journey, he had no problem with a bunch of soldiers going. Ezra was militantly against it. Who's wrong? Is anybody wrong? And why? That's a hard question, isn't it? Anybody want to venture a guess at it? I'm not 100% dogmatic on it, but pretty close to dogmatic. First of all, do you think either one of them was wrong? I would say no. I would say no. Um, what that illustrates, and sometimes it's true in our own life, sometimes God will lead us to, to different conclusions in a certain circumstance. We face it twice in a row, and we handle it two different ways in the will of God because the reasoning behind it was different. See, Ezra's reasoning here, what was it? Ezra had prayed for God to open the door. God opened it. So he has an opportunity to witness to this king. And he has an opportunity to tell him, Artaxerxes, our God is the God of all the earth. And he protects his own. And Ezra felt like to turn around and say, oh, by the way, can you send a bunch of soldiers with us? What that would have done is undermine his witness to that king. But it wasn't the same case with Nehemiah. Different circumstance. Wasn't the same thing. Uh, you can find a similar New Testament parallel, I think. Remember Paul has these two young men that he takes with him? Timothy and Titus. And uh, Timothy, he has circumcised immediately because of the Jews that were there. Titus... When the Jewish Judaizing teachers are saying he should be circumcised, Paul steadfastly refuses. So he has two young men, two protégés he takes with him. One of them, he says, yeah, you should get circumcised because of the Jews. The others, the Jews say he should be circumcised, and he said, not a chance. No, 
Well, is Paul inconsistent? Different? See, don't get me wrong, the decisions we make are very important, but our, our, our spiritual reasoning behind our decisions is just as important. I mean, I like to ask people sometimes, if there's certain decisions made, and, well, I just think this, or I feel that, or I pray it all, and I'll sometimes ask them, what, what's, your, what's your biblical reasoning process that brought you here? Can you help me understand why you've come to this position from here to here? Can you explain to me biblically how you got from point A to point B? That's a very important question. By the way, that's one of the things I love in Mueller's biography. He does that. He'll list 24 reasons why we're going this way. And I found that a helpful exercise in my own life. I do that in my journals periodically. I'll list reasons of certain decisions. And sometimes I look back and go, kind of missed point four and seven there. But the point is, though, Paul's, Paul's reasoning with Titus and Timothy was different because Timothy's circumcision was becoming all things to all men and it opened more doors of evangelism. That was the reasoning there. Titus, it was Judaizing fake teachers who were trying to teach that circumcision uh, added to salvation or helped save you. And so these guys come and say, you got to be circumcised or you can't be saved. And uh, you, should say, you should circumcise him because... He's preaching. Paul says, no way. But the stakes were a totally different circumstance. See, vastly different. And we'll run into those in life. If we ask the question, what honors the Lord the most, as much as I can see? What's the best witness for Christ? Or what would be a hindrance to this person? Or what would help them to see God clearly? Those questions help us with our thought processes. And sometimes it's going to be two different... Nehemiah, and, and who knows, maybe they talked about it among themselves. Hey, why did you have soldiers? Why didn't you have soldiers? I don't know. But Nehemiah says, no, I was ashamed. I couldn't do it. And so he says, no, we don't need help. And again, his reason was, I want to show this pagan king that God is real. I mean, I, I told him that. Now it's time to put my money where my mouth is. And I told him how powerful God is. And now I'm going to live like it. Uh, isn't it? It was uh, the church your brother was in. In fact, he's still there, isn't he, in Chugiak? I, I think I've told you before. I, I remember, I'd never been to the church, but I, I'd get off at that. Sometimes, sometimes I was doing jobs up there, and I'd drive by it. And one of their signs, I, know, I, did, I haven't forgotten, they had one of those signs you put the little messages out. You know the ones you see around here that are missing letters all the time? And it said, you do not believe what you do not live. Oh, how true. How true. Really, to a watching world, my faith is only as good as the life that backs it up. I believe Jesus is coming soon. Do you? I believe the gospel is powerful. Is that right? I believe prayer does things. Oh. I believe my walk with God is the most important thing on this earth. Okay. Is it evident? Is it evident? Ezra was. All right, we're going to trust God. I'm going to show you how. Uh, he could have asked for a military escort. escort and Artaxerxes definitely would have given it. 
Uh, but he assumed Artax- he assured Artaxerxes he didn't need protection because beyond what God would furnish. He testified God takes care of those who seek him but punishes those who forsake him. And again, they had that deliberate, they had that direct promise as Jews heading to the promised land. It was under the law. It was up to Ezra to prove he believed what he told the king. So he and the exiles cast their care into God's hands, his sovereign hands, by fasting and asking for his protection. God didn't disappoint their faith. He answered their prayers. Somehow, God let his people know he wanted them to totally depend on him for safety and guidance. So look at verse 23. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. So somehow it was communicated to them, I've heard you. I'm going to do it now. Now go. Now is that distinctly an Old Testament thing? That's actually a hard question. That would generate a lot of discussion in a lot of circles. I want to be careful saying this because I don't want to give in to the, the charismania, trust your feeling, name it, claim it, garbage. We reject that. But uh, in fact, one of the passages we'll probably look at this morning in uh, 1 John, he's talking about that we know there's an assurance that comes from a nearness to God that what we ask Him, He's going to give, and we know we have the petitions that we desire of Him. So there is such thing as an assurance of the will of God in a certain area, but that's something we learn by experience as we walk with Him. And that's something we ought to be very, very careful saying. I've, uh, I've known some good brethren that would... I don't think it's a helpful thing. God told me this, God told me that. Someone says, well, this was going on and I prayed and God told me to go into that store. When I hear that, I'm thinking, caution against that. Not to mention I've seen that wrong more than once. What, what a statement like that is communicating is direct revelation. In other words, God told me to do it. I can't argue with God. So basically, the voice I just heard in my head is now on par with Scripture. It's a very dangerous ground. But yet there is such a thing as an assurance of the will of God so powerful. And uh, many of God's saints in history have testified of that. I could, I could dig up examples on that. Um, but that's something that's wrestled out in the prayer closet with God. Um, And I would say it's not just an Old Testament thing. Although God spoke more audibly back then uh, because He chose to work that way. But all right, let let me put it this way though. How does God let believers today know what to do in situations? Now, are you ready for this? I'm not saying one is clearly sinful and uh, one is not. Maybe uh, some of you know this. I, uh, you know this battle. My wife will tell you sometimes I can be an overanalyzer. I mean, all look. It's funny that this whole thing with us moving. Boy, howdy. She will tell you I've prayed and searched and written and I've a page after page of notes on thought processes and why I think the Lord should have us do this and that and we discuss it and we pray about it and we search and I'm probably too much, honestly, but. I don't want to misstep, but sometimes the hardest battles in seeking the will of God, at least I have found, it's not between, well, this is right and this is wrong. Are you going to trust me? Although that's plenty of a battle. It's there's two good options. 
and you're standing at a crossroad, and maybe you can biblically back up both. <laughs> well, well, what then? What, how does God reveal his will to us? Let me throw that question out. This, is, this couldn't be much more practical. I'll have coffee while I'm staring at you. I, uh, let me put this down. I'll give you a hint. <clears throat> I always think of something like this. See those three legs? All right, I'm seeking the will of God. Which means is God going to use to make His way plain? What three legs? Okay, one. <clears throat> right? Let me, let me just say this. The right, the right application of the Scriptures. Not proof texting. What's, what's the difference? Proof texting is basically just flipping through, looking for a single isolated verse or two that makes me assured of what I want to do and how I should do it and really agrees with me. Or... It's uh, taking passages out of their context. I'm not against life verses, but I've heard more than one life verse means something totally different than what somebody thinks it does and why they chose it as a life verse to begin with. So, the right application of Scriptures. Uh, By the way, there's safety in a multitude of counselors, but what's a good counselor going to do? They're going to make you think God's thoughts after Him and help you through applying the Scriptures rightly. That's one of the things they're going to do. It's not just, listen, counsel, biblical counsel is not, well, you know what my Aunt Patty used to say, or Aunt Sue, just pick an aunt. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's not what I feel. That's not what Oprah said. Well, I had a dream one time that said, well, that didn't happen for me, and blah, 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 blah. What are they saying? Who cares what their aunt or whoever else said? So, biblical counsel is going to help put the Scriptures in context, make right application, and apply it to us. And again, the Bible is not a good luck charm book. It's not pick a verse, pick a verse, pick a verse. It's understand the flow of thought in its context, and through that means my mind is shaped to think like God. The one classic example, Philippians 4.13. Let's say Richard comes to me, he says, Pastor, I've been really wrestling with starting a chicken farm. Yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell discount chickens. It's going to be Fairbank discount chickens. And uh, I flipped my Bible open this morning. And there, it's like it jumped out and grabbed me by the neck. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So, uh, there you go. Well, it... Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't start a chicken farm, but I'm saying that's a bad reason. Why? Why is that a bad reason? What's Philippians 4.13 talking about? Is it talking about starting a chicken farm? (laughs) It's talking about going through the changing circumstances, suffering, persecution, difficulty, doing the will of God, no matter how hard it is, through Christ which strengthens me. That's vastly different than... You know, I opened up a text... Some of you heard the old story, a guy's trying to seek the will of God, and he flips through, and he points to a verse, and it says, Judas went and hanged himself. And then he flips through again and points, and it says, go and do likewise. 
that's, uh, hey, I remember a dear Christian lady, is, you don't know her, she's thousands of miles from here, but she was going to start a business. It didn't end up going very well, but uh, I remember her telling me, I, I was actually doing some of the work in the place. I wasn't in a counseling position, but she was explaining to me how she knows this is the will of God because she heard two sermons in the last month, and they were both on the, both on the text, open wide thy mouth, and I'll fill it. And based on that, I know this is God telling me start a business. Wait a minute. That, 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 that's okay, there's lots more biblical reasoning to be gone through. All right, so pillar number one is biblical, the right application of the Scriptures. What might be next? Okay, prayer, yes. I don't want to remove that as a pillar, but I, I guess I would say, let me put it this way. Prayer is going to be the umbrella over this. That, that's thank you. Yes, prayer, utterly, utterly, absolutely critical. But in an atmosphere of prayer, I should say, as we're praying, right application of the scriptures, what else? Uh, is God a God who can open and shut doors? How about providential circumstances? Okay, that's leg number two. What about leg number three? It's an internal one. I mean, is there such a thing as a peace of God with going the right direction? There is. So, those are the three legs. Now, what has to be number one? If you can only have one of those, what has to be there? It has to be the Scriptures. There, there will be, I will tell you, there will be circumstances in life that you don't feel a subjective peace and you don't see doors opening. And by the way, there's times where we trust the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and we go forward trusting God's ability to guide more than our ability to hear. Um, sometimes it's like the priest stepping in Jordan, and you're not going to see it cross until you go forward and trust God to guide that step. There's times like that too. Okay, So the, the Scriptures have to be first, the right application of those. But beyond that, uh, providential circumstances... Uh, Inward peace. Some of you know the story. When we, when we came here, it had been stirring in my heart for probably four or five years that the Lord was going to open a door to ministry like that. Can't explain why, but it was a growing conviction. And for some reason that it was going to be in the Northwest somewhere. Can't explain that either. Now, I didn't go tell people that. That was just the inclination I had for years. Okay, then... Uh, I happened, right? Brother Neiman's up there, and we're having a conference. And I just sat down casually at lunch with him and said, I think it was one of the first times I'd asked a question like this of somebody, because I was very impressed to start pushing on the door. And I said, hey, do you know of any churches looking for a pastor? And you know, in all your, because he travels all over and knows a lot of churches. He said, yeah. He mentions, boy, there's this church, and... I wouldn't go there if I were you. And <laughs> you don't know the church. There were a couple where he's like, nah, I wouldn't stay. But this church in Helena, he says, man, you really ought to think about that. And I didn't really think about it very much. I said, okay, and that, that, was, that was kind of it. Well, then somebody chases me down. I get an email from the church. Hey, Brother Neiman mentioned your name to us. Would you at least consider coming here? And I'd say, you know, maybe we corresponded. And then it was, 
can you send us your resume and all this other stuff? And I, and I said, well, I don't have a resume exactly, but how about I send you a lengthy essay given a philosophy ministry? And when I sent that, I told my wife, this is not going to produce a neutral response. Guaranteed. What I just sent, it's going to be one of two things. It's going to be either have a nice life or let's talk. And it was, it was the second. Hey, can you come down and visit? Well, here we are. But so, praying through it, God opens providential doors. We walk through. I mean, was that an accident that Brother Neiman was there and that he happened to say what he... I mean, was that an accident? No, it wasn't an accident. So, those doors can accentuate. The Scriptures have to be first. Man, we got to stop. Let me just say this. Let me close with this verse, and we'll probably talk about it a little in the morning service too. We know Romans 12, 1 and 2. In fact, uh, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. It's really, what's Proverbs 3, 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. How do I do that? He's God. I want to know His will. I want to do it. Lean not to thine own understanding. Reject wicked counsel. Don't look at this through the lens of the flesh. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. Put off sin. Search my heart. Make sure I really want to do His will. And He shall direct thy paths. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's not that much different. Knowing who God is, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God, because of who He is, that you what? You present your bodies a living sacrifice. All of you, by the way, one of the hardest battles in prayer is submission. Really is. A lot of the battle is, am I subject to God in every known area? One of the hardest things in major decisions is becoming objective. Getting to the place where you can pray about it without personal bias. I've told some of you the story. Uh, when, don't get me wrong, I'm the will of God done. When Eric Johnson came to me, I was already having a really bad week. And uh, him and I are working on the job site, installing flooring. And he gives me an oh, by the way, at lunch, and mentions this church in Oklahoma that's interested in him moving there. And uh, I want the will of God done. My stomach got sick. And uh, I told him later, you know, he wanted to discuss it. It took me three weeks of praying about that before I could discuss it with him objectively. And I told him that later. I said, I had to get to the place where it was truly, Lord, thy will be done. And it took me a while to get there. And so now we can talk. And it was obvious the Lord wanted him there. Obvious. But... Getting to objectivity is a difficult one. No, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies. It's all of you. Your mind, your hands, your feet. A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. Reject sin. And then, have your mind renewed. Don't be conformed to the world. What happens? You can prove. and You can test and tell the good and perfect and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that's, that's how it happens. All right, got to stop. We're late. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I pray you'd help us. Lord, you know what a struggle it is. And rightly applying your word is not something we learn in a, in a year. It's a lifelong process. I pray you'd help us to be discerning. To help us be like those Bereans whose names we have in the sign out front. Help us to be those who search the scriptures, whether these things are so. And to rightly apply them. And I pray that we'd reap your blessings as a result of that. In Jesus' name, amen.